You're listening to the True Life Church Podcast. To learn more about True Life Church, including our service times in Melbourne, Florida, join us online at truelifemelbourne.com or find us on Facebook. Today's message comes from Lead Pastor Joshua Smith. During the Elkmont trackless train half marathon in Canada a number of years ago, about four years ago, I believe, runners were joined by a dog who had been let out for a potty break, a bloodhound named Ludivine. That's a name for you. Ludivine had, had gone out to go potty. And they had started this race in front of their house, and the dog decided to run the full half marathon. And if I'm correct here, even finished seventh, placed. And they gave it an award. They gave it a medal. And this bloodhound got distracted a few times. Ludovine wandered off the trail to smell a dead rabbit and sniff other things and probably mark more trees than his bladder was prepared for. And this quick potty break turned into running a half marathon and then being awarded a medal for seventh place. You can look this up. This, this, actually, this actually happened. Um, kind of surprising. The owner <laughs> said, my first reaction was that I was embarrassed and worried that she had possibly gotten in the way of the other runners. She's laid back and friendly, so I can't believe she ran the whole half marathon because she's actually really lazy. Um, one of the other runners, every time I, he turned around, the dog wasn't there, thought, well, maybe Ludovine has given up and gone home, and then he'd look around again as he was passed by this dog and then lost. Anyway... So Ludovine got an award. That's quite cute. You can look it up. My hope, in a way, is that you have come to church this morning and may find yourself leaving with a lot more than you bargained for. You may have left the house to do something routine. Come to church, gather, use the potty if you were a doggy. Do something regular and go out there and sniff around a little bit and then go back home and my hope is actually that you end up feeling like in some ways you've run a marathon. Not because of how long we've stayed, but because of the weight of the metal that is now around your neck and your heart spurring us into action. My hope is also, secondarily, that you do not listen to this message and think that, well, surely this is for someone else. I can think of the person he's exactly talking about today, and I'm going to tag them or send them a message and saying, you need to listen to this message. Uh, it's great. This, was, this is exactly what I'm talking about that you need to hear, etc., etc., etc. My hope is that we are all adherent to the words of this morning and walk away with something like, okay, that is, that is for me. Convicting, but convincing that we needed to hear it. We are continuing again, as I mentioned in our series in Nehemiah, and we have covered a lot of ground in the few chapters that we've been in so far. I want to pick up actually with the last few verses we read on the entourage that was Easter 
A lot of scripture, a lot of things to digest, hopefully things that you are still thinking about, meditating on, and as always, I encourage you to go back and listen to the messages again, not because of what I say or because of what David says or any of the other elders or people who preach on this platform, uh, but so that we let the word of God sink and soak into our hearts to begin to apply them to action. Recap, man named Nehemiah leaves the kingdom of Persia under Artaxerxes, comes back to the homeland he's never seen, and is distraught and repentant with its condition. The city of Jerusalem lies in ruins, and he sets about with a man named Ezra working simultaneously on different projects to go about its rebuilding. And so they begin with obviously trying to get the wall back in place and using the bricks and the blocks that had been broken down and using those to reassemble the wall so that Jerusalem could be a city once again. And so they begin rebuilding the wall and they are up against a bunch of tribes and also a bunch of difficult individuals of those tribes and groups who want to thwart these, the rebuilding of this wall and the making of the city of Jerusalem because if they do that, they are afraid that the God that whom they serve, and I've been heard stories about growing up, the Ark of the Covenant and the God of that people defeating nations in battles, defeating giants. They know the stories of the crossing of the Red Sea. They've heard the tale of this famous people, and surely they cannot allow that people to rebuild that city again because that God is powerful and will make them a mighty nation. So they don't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. They don't want the Israelite tribe and nation around the, the area of Judea to establish a good foothold there again. They like it weak because that means that they are strong. Well, that doesn't come to pass. Their hopes are dashed when Nehemiah, under the work and the direction of God, rebuild the wall in 52 days. And so that's where we finished last two weeks ago in our series on Easter and the parallels between that and Jesus and the cross. And we're going to pick up, I'm going to recap actually just a little bit of that here beginning in chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, bad guy, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Erah. And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshullam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Why is that important? Because they're basically showing that these, these people are all, basically have intermarried with the Israelite remnant that have stayed. And this is going to cause problems later near the end of this book. But going on for now, also they spoke of his, his good deeds in my presence, they're trying to make him seem like he's a good guy instead of a bad guy, and reported my words to him. These are tattletales and people who are snitching at Nehemiah's plans and thoughts and actions and going to tell Tobiah. And Tobiah sent me letters to make me afraid. Continuing on in chapter 7, Now when the wall had been built... And I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. 
I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. While they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. (coughs) So up until this point, we have walls and not really great living conditions on the inside. No homes. The walls were the priority. And I want to take a few minutes and break some of this down before we go into our main reading today in chapter 8. Again, in chapter 6, we have these nobles, Tobiah, the Ammonites, and Ren. He's not an Israelite man, but they have intermarried and are also now complicit and not allegiant to Yahweh, God. And again, this will matter at the end of this book. Here in chapter 7, verse 1, the wall had been built, and I set up the doors and the gatekeepers. The singers and the Levites had been appointed. Now, if you can imagine this, a typical singing group was not the usual people you would put on the wall to guard it. Think about that for a second. When you think of the most robust fighting people, it's usually not your singers. Okay? It's usually not the band. They make music, hooray, put them in charge of guarding gates and swords and sharp things. Man, instrumentalists will trip over nothing. Scary. I've seen it. We are clumsy people. Usually. And these are the people who are on guard at the wall. And I just want to highlight something briefly here. It's seen... To us, that being on guard was part of the act of worship. In other words, making or having someone be the, a singer or in the band did not exempt them from the primary role, which was make sure the city is safe, watch over the kingdom. Sometimes I think we can get distracted, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, with our roles serving even in ministry positions within churches. I think that's what I do. That's why I'm there. To teach the kids, to, to play the instruments, to greet at the door, to make the coffee. That's not why we're here. We're here to build up the kingdom, right, as our primary goal. And these Levites and priests and singers on the wall were guarding as an act of worship. Philippians chapter 4, 7, I just want to highlight two scriptures, says this, And and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And also 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, I love this with this passage, Be on your guard, the NIV says. Be on your guard, stand firm, In the faith, be courageous, be strong. And us being on guard 
and having our senses heightened and being on alert with how we parent our children, being on alert with what media we allow that comes into our homes, being alert in what uh, businesses or trips we decide to go on or support, those things matter. Being on guard can be an act of worship for us. Being alert, being strong, being courageous. A few verses later in verse 3, we notice a tiny detail where Nehemiah says to appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Some with their guard posts and some in front of their own homes, which were probably not well built or even finished And it's a simple reminder for us, some practical leadership lessons from this morning, that those entrusted from within are usually going to be the most committed to it. Appoint guards from within the city of Jerusalem, the people who had already committed to going and working on the wall. Not everyone had. In fact, most people, 75% of them or so, still lived outside the city doing whatever it was they wanted and occasionally maybe coming into the city or checking on its progress. But Nehemiah made it a point to appoint guards from within the city because they, if we think about it, are going to be the most committed to its protection. There are times in our past, in my past, where we as a church and we as the church in America appoint leaders from not within. We elevate or promote guards, if you will, at central key gates, entrance and access of our church on things like theology and doctrine. And we put those people, and we have, in in charge. And suddenly we see issues and things happen. Groups Small groups, cliques, fragment and separate because some of those people probably shouldn't have been where they were. And so I just want to encourage that for our church, its future, and even for you in your own practical life. Don't entrust someone who is not a Christ follower to guide you in your life. They're not going to have the same information, the same concern. They're not going to care for you in the same way. They're not going to understand love because God is love. If they don't know who God is, then they don't know what love is. They know what the world falsely might believe or call love. And that love might tell you to abandon relationships when in fact you should stay. And their perception of what you may or may not should do may be the opposite of what God and his word might be asking of you. Does this make sense? Right? Don't entrust people outside your city to protect your walls. And this is another reason why our church and our church as a family is so important as we build each other up from within. And we get to see leaders as teenagers 
who stepped up and said, I will lead the cleaning team two years ago. And that should stir our hearts like, wow, let's elevate from within. Let's build up and encourage. What a joy. Going on after chapter 7, verse 5, you will read a long passage which is almost identical to what we already read in Ezra chapter 2. Right? It's the genealogy of the people that have come and now are existing in this area in and around Jerusalem. And we're not going to read it. We read it in Ezra a bit, and you can read that later. Uh, but I don't want to, in the not reading of it publicly, I don't want to breeze over it as far as, oh, it's not important. And in fact, it is. And we might even ask, you know, the original book was Ezra Nehemiah. It was one text and later, uh, they separated that into the two books that we have, Ezra and Nehemiah, which is why they fall right next to each other. So you might ask, as they were one book together originally, why was the same identical, almost genealogical tree there twice? Why is it in here again? Well, its purpose was not to give new information, but good leaders always assess what resources they have. Good leaders always assess what resources they have. In this case, it's people and where they come from and how many there are and what their skills and talents are. What do they do? Good leaders always assess what resources they have. We might call it today, take stewardship of what you've got. In this case, Nehemiah is assessing people, time, Purpose, finances, talents and skills. For you, it could be even technology, location. Where are you at? What resources do you have at your disposal? I know how many hours you have in a day. I have the same. I know your general location. We live in the same community. Most of us are probably uh, aware and have access to much of the same technology curses that they may be from time to time. What resources do you have? Well, we start getting more specific when we start talking about maybe your financial ability, the talents and skills that you have. I'm thankful I play piano. You don't want me playing saxophone. This is not a skill. It might be your skill, and that's great. Come, come join us. Play saxophone. That's not my skill. What skills do you have? And more importantly, how can those be used for the kingdom work? For the building up of the wall. That's why we're taking stock. Nehemiah was taking stock of all of this. You see, it's not about being rich or poor. It's not. I'm reminded of the parable, or not the parable, actually. It's the, the actual story where Jesus is seeing all the, the wealthy Rich people come and make a big show of their giving and offering in the temple. Along comes a, a, a widow with not but two coins to rub together. Blink, that's it. Jesus said she gave more than the rest of them. You see, it's not about how much you have, it's how you use what you have. It's not about rich or poor, it's the stewardship of what you have. I've known people 
who were on food stamps and financial assistance and used what they had and managed it well. I've also known people who may even have more and much, much more than that, but they can't balance a budget for their life. They overspend or go into debt, and it seems like they never have enough time, enough money, enough tools, enough resources. Many people are constantly swimming in a pool of problems, collecting more like it's their hobby. Don't raise your hands, but do you know anyone like that? Something is constantly and always wrong, and then another, and then another, and then another, and they can never get ahead. They can never get out of debt. They're never taking initiative because they're not assessing, taking stock or stewardship of what they have. This is a valuable skill, and if not a required one, for us to grow in our walk with the Lord. Take stock and stewardship of what you have. If you know anyone like that, then encourage them. Speak the truth in love. And if that sounds like you today, then you need to assess your resources and be humbled enough to ask for help. Ask yourself for just this moment, what do you have? What do you have at your disposal? How many Netflix shows could you not have watched this week? How many things were actually unnecessary? Did you really need that venti, super duper, extra foamy latte? Assess what you have, take stock of it, and be a good steward of it. Going on now into chapter 8, because we've skipped all of 7. Here we see the partnership of Nehemiah and Ezra. And I want to begin with reading chapter 8, verses 1. And we're going to close out our main scripture reading at 12. And I want to read all of it, which is just 12 verses. And we're going to go back and pull some things out of it. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe took, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Paliah, the Levites, helped the people 
to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So again, we see the partnership between Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra had uh, been there already, and Nehemiah comes, and Ezra's purpose is kind of the, the scriptural and spiritual leader of the people, and in fact, also the scribe. I mean, he's riding down. Most likely, he wrote this after it had transpired, um, and then... Nehemiah's job as governor was like building projects. So Nehemiah wasn't as concerned, though he was, and we read about it in a few earlier chapters in Nehemiah, about the spiritual health of the people. He was. But his primary goal was wall building, city building, roof, house building, government practices. And so here we see the partnership between Ezra and Nehemiah as Ezra comes in with this book of the law. Now, keep in mind, the book that we read out of like this today is not the type of book that they read out of back then. This book is essentially a library. This is a codex, even, of many books assembled together. And we are able to thumb through it at will. What they would have done is these books were giant scrolls. And you can, even to this day, go into a a Jewish temple or a Messianic temple or synagogue, and they come out with the scroll that's about this tall, and they would roll it out. And they would, I mean, I have this little pulpit thing here. They would roll this thing way out. It was one of the reasons why they probably built the platform the way that they did, so that they could roll out the scroll because they said, we're going to read all of it, all of the law. And so this scroll would have been brought out and then rolled out as Ezra and the others read from it. The people gathered as one. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, right there in verse 1. And all the law was read. Now, if you don't know this, well, what is the law, right? usually it's all or most of what we are going to call the Pentateuch. All right, That's a fun word for you today if you are unaware. The Pentateuch. Penta meaning five. Tuke meaning tuke. It's <laughs> a joke. All right. And, and, the, and that's the first five books that we read even out of our book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All right, the first five books. They read all of it. 
The people gathered as one, and they read all of it. A few things to highlight here. It was usually read, the law was usually read only in the temple, and only for men. But in this case, they assembled everyone, all people as one, the men, this is important, the women, and this is important, the children. They assembled all of them together at the same time for the proclamation of the word of God. The first day of the seventh month was the beginning of the new year in their calendar, kind of like our January 1st. And we have this, we have this day where, they, where we read about it was being read, and it was a day of solemn rest like a Sabbath. And it was a day of atonement and was kept. And then this began the Feast of Booths, and we're going to go into that next week even. And the title of where we're going to go into, you can probably even read in your text, says Feast of Booths Celebrated. Um, no clue, Sherlock, that's where we're going. But for today... They built this platform, and they read the law. Now, hold on to this thought. They read all of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The average time it takes someone to read Genesis is 3.5 hours. Exodus, 3 hours. Leviticus, 2 hours. Numbers, 3 hours. And Deuteronomy, 2.5 hours. And so you can see here that they, when they put this, they opened the scroll, and he read from it facing the square before Watergate from early morning, this is when his sunrise, from the first moment they would have been able to see the text, from early morning until midday. I can tell when y'all look at the clock. And it's like 12.04. You're like, I'm done. Wrap it up. Right? These people listen to a six and a half ish hour sermon. Anyone up for that? No, we're too lazy, like that dog. Ludivine. And they built a platform for this thing, most likely for acoustics so that everyone could hear, so they could roll out the scroll. And like this pulpit and this platform, these things do not exist to elevate the status of the people on them. Platforms do not exist for people, but for the proclamation. Think about this. You, you go see a Coldplay concert or whatever. If you too is still alive and they're touring, you go see them. They're on a stage so that What's proclaimed their music, the Eagles fan album, you can hear, take it to the limit one more time. Take it to the limit one more time. Take it to the limit one more. If you know it, don't even worry about it. That song ends, should just end way too early. Take it to the limit one more. Make it end, Eagles. Make it end. Exist, the stage and the platform exists for the proclamation. They want you to hear the song and what's being done on it. So they built a platform for it. And we have to be careful here, as do other churches, that this platform and this pulpit does not exist for the people. It exists for the proclamation. Let's go on. I want to read, find this verse for you. So 
So he read from, he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in verse 3. Keep your finger there. And look at verse 5. Keep your finger there. And Ezra opened the book. That's what we just talked about. He opened the book to read from it. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people on the platform. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Not only was it a six and a half hour sermon, you had no chairs. And there were men, and there were women, and there were children. This might sound like a parenting nightmare. Where is the child care? Can we please dismiss the clubhouse now? Go get them some sugar. My child needs a nap. I need a nap. This is never going to end. The people stood for about six hours. Anyone want to stand for my message? Now these chairs are far too comfortable and we are far too complacent. We get tired and we complain, as many church people do, if we're standing in the worship sets longer than three songs. Uh, let's keep standing in praise. Oh, my legs. Ugh. We see this even on our live stream. Uh, usually, because we do songs first, the viewership, because we can track it, <laughs> the viewership on our live stream, the most people are on for about the first 20 to 25 minutes. And then it goes, and just kind of floats at two, maybe three. One doesn't count because it's Cigna back there on YouTube moderating it. <laughs> right? It's just two, three, maybe four. All right? And we knew this pre-pandemic, which is one of the reasons why during our Sunday morning live time, we put the songs all throughout the hour or so that we were there. Because if we did all the songs up front, what y'all and the people at ch American church people have taught us is we really about the worship. We're really not about the word. And so they would come and listen and watch and observe and yay, songs! Songs are done. And what are you they just they just check out. Viewership. I know. In churches we become too distracted with the worship, worshiping the worship instead of spending time in the word. And the people stood at the reading of the word. For how long again? Six hours. Ooh, this sounds like a party. There was a time in churches when the people would stand for the reading of God's word for the main scripture passage for that day because the word of God is holy. And growing up in churches that did that for a short while was just barely in this time span. Does anyone remember this, by the way? If you do, you're, you're not young. I know that. Because churches don't do it anymore. But there was a time where we would stand for the reading of the Word of God. What was not understood was why we did it. As in many churches, many things become just rote and methodical and traditions that we mindlessly do. Up and down, kneel, stand, pray. Up, down, up, down, sing, stand, kneel, pray. <sighs> Go home. Wow. <sighs> <sighs> 
yeah, let's definitely skip the next three weeks because that was a lot. You know, see you next month, church. So we stood for the reading of the word. And over time, it became, well, you know what? We don't really have to stand for Old Testament. We're just going to stand for the reading of the things that Jesus said. The red letters. After all, it is the year 1995. Let's get with it. And then it gradually became, well, we, we don't expect people to bring their Bibles to church. You know, we have technology now. We're just going to put the passage up on the screens, and we'll just tell them what it says. They don't have to read it on their own, much less stand for it. And then it became, you know, what people really need is actually less Bible because it's confrontational or offensive now. And we need more life application. We need to know just how to have a good family in five easy steps. That would be great. Let's preach on that. You know, let's, let's preach on um, no sex uh, while dating or before marriage. Let, let's preach on how to balance your budget. Practical life application. Less Bible people are triggered. It's offensive. It's confrontational. And then it became, you know, life application is good, but we should really have more eye-catching marketing. Really, that's what we need. And, and promote trending social issues as we fight injustice and race and endorse all lifestyles and all sin because everything's permissible. Just come. And then it became, well, with masks and to be safe and all, our church has made it even easier to have an excuse and just stay home and watch Observe a great live stream from my couch in my pajamas. We all know you ain't watching it. Back and forth to the kitchen making waffles. And one day people woke up and thought, hey, you know what, maybe that Bible thing just isn't important for me anymore. You see the progression? God's people at large have become distracted and deceived with those other countless issues, warring over a kingdom that Jesus did not come to establish anyways. His kingdom is not of this world. Endorsing, condoning, and tolerating sinful lifestyles, abortion, perversion, fraud, ridiculously wealthy pastors and churches, a distorted gospel, false teaching, and a message of the self as Savior. Why is Nehemiah relevant for us on this day? May Day, if you know it. In 2022. Because we might as well be the people in this book that have merged the worship of other gods along with God. Who have intermarried worldly lifestyles and sins along with biblical ones. Tolerating the sacrificing to other idols while adulterating our relationship with God. God and His Word have never stopped being holy. But God's people and those who follow those people have just stopped revering it as such. You tracking with me on this? 
by and at large, we have stopped standing for the word of God in churches and in our lives. God and his word have never stopped being holy. We just stopped standing on it. And when you don't revere his holiness, when you don't stand on the word of God, when you do not respect and obey his word, then obviously you do not care about the gathering corporately for worship, the edification of his body on earth or the teaching of his word. The recent pandemic has possibly been the conclusion of the de-evolution of the American church. Puffed up and conceited, distracted and disillusioned, corporate and commercial nationwide for decades now has been about simply attracting an audience, creating experiences, manufacturing moments, building larger buildings and satellite campuses and planning programs to keep families busy and entertained instead of biblical and equipped. The average church in America according to multiple recent studies like the Barna Group, is currently at 55% of its pre-pandemic attendance of two years ago. Average church in America is 55% of its pre-pandemic attendance. Y'all, the true church in America is being culled. It's being pruned. It's being cleansed. It's being reformed. Those who have left the church were either faking it or were actually worshiping other gods with names like the CDC, Fauci, Disney, Trump, Biden, politics, children's soccer games, LGBTQIA plus agendas, social justice, race, and gender equality, and on and on, and on. You can find, it's actually not hard-pressed to find a church today that stands on those issues and does not stand on the Word of God. And the equation is backwards. The gig is up. The charade is over. We have seen behind the curtain like in Wizard of Oz. Our God is holy. And worthy of our praise, our time, our devotion, our very lives. And when these people in Nehemiah stood for more than six hours and heard riveting, riveting books like numbers. (laughs) And passionate cries like in Deuteronomy. Whew! What did they do? They wept. They wept. They grieved. The people cried as they heard this. And would hearing the first five books of our Bible bring you to tears today? Would it move you to emotion? Would it cause in you a response at all? Besides boredom? And this doesn't really apply to me. Would it stir you to humility, repentance? Would it put you face down on the ground in worship as they were? 
What do you mean you're lifting up your hands in praise, shouting amen? Are you grieved at our unworthiness, our sinfulness, and our absolute and eternal need of a Savior? Because they heard the law. What is the law? The main part of the law kind of comes down to this thing called the Ten Commandments. In which Charlton Heston went up a mountain. It's a joke. Don't worry about it. The real Moses went up a mountain, spent time with God. And here are the Ten Commandments if you are unfamiliar. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Have they broken that one? Whoops. Number two, you shall not make idols. Have they broken that one? Whoops. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number five, honor your father and mother. Number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And number ten, you shall not covet. They heard the law and they were broken by it because they knew they stand convicted because they were really on trial. Many of you are probably following the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. What a joke. Saw this article in which a prominent conservative figure was lauding this representation of Johnny Depp saying that Amber Heard and the defense were basically, or uh, or the prosecutors rather, were were trying to assassinate Johnny Depp's character and have failed. And if you've read any of the testimony or heard any of it, Johnny Depp's character was not assassinated. It committed suicide. He is up there on testimony, speaking of the substance and narcotic abuse he has done with other prominent and well-known figures in Hollywood cocaine and other things. And we applaud this man? We look up to these people? Why? I don't care who's found guilty. They both are. Well, here the Israelite people in Jerusalem, they knew it too. Because they were standing for the reading. But also, in a sense, they were on trial. They had broken the law and were grieved by it. But they went away rejoicing. Why? Well, one of the last things they read is in the book of Deuteronomy. One of the last things they heard was the last words recorded of Moses. Where he says this in verse 26 of chapter 33. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, which means like upright one of Israel. There is no one like God who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens dropped down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. 
Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. And after rebuilding the wall and standing there, and after hearing the law and their brokenness, they must have looked around and said, Surely our God is still God. Surely He is still worthy of praise. And surely we must be thankful for being able to be back in the land, back in the city that was promised to us. So they're shouting amen and rejoicing. What does this mean for us today? I'm going to close with a few points. I want to teach you a new vocabulary word. You may know it, you may not. Regardless, here is our word. Apostate. Apostate. It's both a noun and an adjective. And this word means renouncing or abandoning religious beliefs or principles. Renouncing or abandoning religious beliefs or principles. Friends, I would argue that much and a growing larger number of Christians, progressive Christians, deconstructing Christians, and much of the church are this word, apostate. They have abandoned religious beliefs and practices, yet profess they're still religious, still believing in God while choosing to ignore his word, living how they wish, being obedient to no one. Now, in our house, in multiple locations, because Hobby Lobby has allowed it, my wife has acquired decorations which say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In fact, I believe in three places in this house of Joshua. Joshua 24.15 says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Is it more places? They were gifts. She did not purchase them. They were gifts. Did everyone hear her out? Okay? Stop buying my wife gifts. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, and I've always... You, you ever find people who like have your name likeness? You know, if your name is David, did you ever think about, oh, you know, David in the Bible, like, so cool. If your name was Paul, and I know there's some... Named Paul, he's like, ever think of the man in the New Testament? Like, oh, Paul, what, a, what an iconic rock star of the faith and what he went through. Anyone named Deborah, Debbie, oh, what good names. You know, like, ah, attached to that name. Well, I got Joshua. That was just my lot in life. <sighs> Sorry. Some of y'all track with me. That's okay. And I was not the son of none. I was the son of two. Mom and dad. I did it. It's there. All right? It's done. And, and I can't help but like think, okay, Joshua, you know, and, and so this verse means more to me than it might to you simply because my name is at the bottom. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, for this season, church, you are my family. This is my house. You're in my house. It's not my house. It's the Lord's house. You understand what I'm saying? Like, we're, 
this is, this is our home. This is our house together. And for this season, God has entrusted me as the leader of this house. And as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. Now this requires not the law or the word of God to change. What dost this then thou require? This requires us to change and adjust our lives accordingly to be a better reflection of Christ, to be more obedient to his word. Friends, we cannot fall into the apostate trap. And so I want to propose some things in our house today. That at least for a season, I want us to be ready to try some of these things, experiment with these things, even to submit to some of these things. Number one, I want you to bring your Bibles. That's on my phone. No, not that one. I want you to bring your Bibles. I want us to come prepared for the study of God's Word. We have been using the English Standard Version, the ESV, for the last five years because we made a choice back then that we believed that it was the most accurate modern English translation to the original texts. And as always, if you do not have a Bible, please take one of the blue ones in your seat baskets home with you. A friend of mine within this house sent me a text couple of weeks ago on Easter, and this picture he sent me was a picture of his young daughter's Bible, where she had taken rigorous post-it notes from the message that day, and it made my heart happy, because a child is learning God's Word. You can give me all the compliments you want, you can give me all the criticisms you want, about a message. But that, that makes, that makes my heart happy. I'm not up here just blah, 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 blah for nothing. I'll be honest with you as a pastor, and any pastor, some days it feels like that. I don't want to be the teacher in Charlie Brown. No, 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 it's, Let's read and study and apply together. Bring your Bible. Come prepared with it. Walk in ready. Number two, come ready to worship. Come ready to sing and praise Him with all that you are, with loud and joyful voices, regardless of how you feel. Modern church has made worship about what you feel. I felt worship today, we said. Did you? Because <laughs> if you did, it wasn't about God. Worship is not about how we feel. Worship is because God deserves it. And that's why we're here. And what time, church, do we start? 10.30, just making sure. Because that's why we're here. The worship of God is not about how you or how I feel, whether or not we liked or disliked the songs. If we thought there were too many, could there really be? Too few? 
We worship God because he is holy, not because I feel like he is. Or because I had a good week, or I had a bad week, or because my friends and family are there. And if they don't come, uh, maybe I'll just skip today and watch on the live stream. Now, I'm not telling you to not be sick. I wasn't here last Sunday either. You would not have wanted me to be. For the first few hours of last Sunday morning, there were no bathrooms, no running water. Josh needed to be home, okay? Thanks, man. I joked with a friend, I was researching alternative rocket fuels. It was bad, all right? I'm not saying don't be sick. I'm saying come ready to worship. Stop finding excuses because the singer is out that you like or the pastor is out so you're falsely thinking that the message won't be as good. Friends, if we remain preaching the word of God truthfully in love, the message will always be good. I don't care if it's me up here or not. This leads into the next one for our house today. Make missing gathering with our body of Christ the exception instead of the acceptation. See what I did there? Huh? We, we, can't, we can't accept, oh, I'm just going to be gone today. It's easier for me to be away. Friends, it matters when we are all here. It matters when we are all here. I realize that this may be only a reminder to some and a boot in the backside to others, but it needs to be said regardless. All the people we read here gathered as one in Jerusalem, and it mattered. All heard the word, regardless of age or gender or status, and it mattered. All were taught, all worshipped, all repented, and it mattered. This requires a shift and an adjustment on our part away from what we will call cultural Christianity. I am aware of what time it is, friends, and we'll wrap up soon, but we're not done. Part of me is even debating prayerfully, I'm not debating prayerfully, I'm prayerfully seeking, but debating even about shifting our Sunday morning time so that there is no such thing as child care. Hi, Bethany. She's hearing about this. <laughs> and possibly bringing back this thing, Sunday school, where we would come for training, small group, life, fellowship, or whatever, and then we would all worship together. All ages. All binary genders. Men, women, children together. And if my four-year-old and two-year-old are bothering my wife, okay. <laughs> it's funny, but you, you know what I mean. This has to be a place where all ages, 
learn to hear the word of God. Modern church has created a place where you worship in your peer groups. Young adults by themselves. Students by themselves. Kids by themselves. Seniors by themselves. Men by themselves. Women by themselves. And the church is fragmented and also weak because of it. And children do not grow up knowing how to worship with a senior citizen next to them. It is unusual territory. That is not a biblical church. Make missing gathering with our body of Christ the exception instead of the exception. I love the title of this. This website is called Your Mom Has a Blog. Your Mom Has a Blog. Com. A friend of mine on Facebook posted this, and I read it. And the author, Melissa Edgington, writes this. It was Sunday morning, and the baseball team, ranging in age from 9 to 12 years, met excitedly in the parking lot so that their parents could take enthusiastic photos before caravanning to the tournament. Their car windows were covered in shoe-polished cheers, boasting the kids' jersey numbers and shouting family excitement about the games before them. Some of the parents who took their place in the line of cars were professing Christians. Some were even pretty involved in the life of their church. But somewhere along the line, their understanding of the place of baseball and their kids' lives changed. What started out as a once-in-a-while Sunday game turned into an every-weekend, every-Sunday commitment. And before long, they began speaking a truth directly to their kids' hearts that church is non-essential. And the longer this way of life continues, the more parents will speak to their kids' hearts. Jesus isn't central. Faith is a side interest. Church involvement has little to do with the rest of life. My own faith isn't important to me. On and on the messaging goes, while well-meaning Christian parents convince themselves that they are acting in the best interest of their children. After several years of this messaging, kids' hearts have learned the lessons Faith is of little consequence in their lives. Their parents have taught them well to major in the minors. And the result, in many cases, may even be eternal death. Make missing out on church the exception instead of the acceptation. Now, I realize what I'm saying. I do. I know what I'm asking of our house. I know what it means. This means we adjust our vacation trips and time frame to be back for church. This means we say no to taking our kids to their dance team, league, palm, soccer, baseball, travel tournament games on Sundays. This means we reevaluate our excuses for missing and prioritize making church weekly. I hope you feel encouraged with that and not discouraged. These people gathered as one and it mattered. And friends, when we gather as one, it matters. It absolutely matters. 
Another thing this house is going to do and continue doing is that the scripture passages only are going to be on the screen. Some churches, and I've been asked this before, doesn't hurt my feelings to be asked it, but publicly this is why. We only put the scripture passage on the screen, not the whole text. Why not? I want you to pull out the book and read it. We live in a world where you can, and people do, blindly trust what people in leadership say. And I don't want you to LeVar Burton this thing. Don't take my word for it. Read it. Pull out the book and read it so that you see I'm not making up Bible text to suit my own agendas or what I feel I want to talk about that day. One of the benefits that we've been in this whole year is teaching expositorily through Second Chronicles, Ezra, and now in Nehemiah. I'm not choosing what text comes next. I didn't write it. I just get to deal with it and do my best in the Word and the teaching. I want you to read the Scripture for yourself. Another one, I want you to come even when you're not serving. You'd be surprised how easy it is to fall into this trap. But when we miss out on the teaching, we miss out on the fellowship, the communion, the corporate worship of God, and suddenly, over time, people, church people, Christian church people, start finding their identity and what they do instead of why they're there. It's not about making coffee. It's not about only teaching the kids. It's not about only singing on the worship team. It's about being here together for the worship of God. Because you and I were created to worship. We need to revere His Word as holy. And starting this week, I'd like us to do something the Israelite people here in Jerusalem did. Do you notice what it was? They stood for the reading of the word. So starting next week, I'd like us all to stand for the reading of the main scripture every Sunday. I just want to start with that. Doesn't that sound old-fashioned? Isn't that traditional? Isn't that something a a weird-ish group would do? I do believe it is something that a biblically reverent church would do. If we revere this word as holy, then by all means we can stand for two minutes at its reading in honor of what it says and who wrote it. This is something that the modern church has forgotten. We've talked about that already. But I believe over time, let's try it out together, sure, but I believe over time, as this becomes habits in our house, it's going to freak some other people out. What are you, what are you, just stand up, just stand, just stand. As we read our main scripture. But since you are here today, and the next person who missed today and didn't watch the recorded video of it comes next Sunday, and we all stand and they don't know why, you tell them why.
Because our God is holy, and so is his word. And we stand in honor and reverence and humility at its reading. In the next month or so, I'd also like us to experiment with our order of worship. Usually we do lather, rinse, repeat. Welcome, song, 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 song. Announcements, gather, greet, message. Song, song, if we have time, bye-bye. And again, and again. I was a worship leader for over a decade, vocationally, professionally, if you will, before God has thrust me into this role over the last seven years. And all my instruction and all the worship leadership videos that I taught and the conferences I went to told us that worship needs to precede the word because it will emotionally break down the walls in people's hearts and then they will be receptive to life change in the text. Now they didn't say it that way because they might have the same eyebrows that that you do. It's not phrased that way, but it was, in many ways, constantly and consistently communicated. And so you, you tune in to our services, and 99% of all other church services, if you watch them, they go song, 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 song. What do we do? And so the American church, including ours, has gotten accustomed to, we just come in with worship. And a lot of it, like half an hour, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, more songs, we say. And then we see, again, the live stream viewership tank when it comes to the word. We've been taught that it's the emotional icebreaker before the Bible. And modern worship and music dominate the church scene, don't they? There's no shortage of Christian radio stations. Christian teaching stations are few. So we open up with that because surely that's what people want to hear, a good band, a good start, talented team. But the more I study the text, worship and song is most often found after the reading of the word. Not before. Instead of preparing the way for the scripture every Sunday with songs, we more often invite someone to begin with the worship of a God they may not even know. Well, let's tell them who that God is first. Let's show them through the reading of the word why what we are about to sing about is important. What if, what if we learned from his word first and that fueled our worship as a response to who he is and what he's done? You know what this means, don't you? Circling back to why it's important to be here and what time we start, it will be very awkward if you are late. And we start with the message. Not saying it's bad. Just saying, what if, what if we start with that? Yeah, maybe one song off the top, just to 
remind people we've started, and then just dive right into the word. What do y'all think? I want to try it. I'm not committed to its hooray. I'm not, it's not a hill I'm going to die on, <laughs> right? But I want to try it. And if you're willing to try that with me, it could open our eyes. We read in Mark chapter 14, 26, and Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, that after the Lord's Supper, what did the disciples do? Along with Jesus. Before Jesus went out into the garden, before he prayed, before he was betrayed, what did the disciples do after the Lord's Supper? They sang a hymn. The word came first, and then the worship. Musicians were important in the battle. Israelites would accompany the ark, but the musicians and the singers and the trumpeters, their purpose was to accompany the ark. What was in the ark? What was in it? The two tablets. The law. The word of God written in his hand. That's what was inside in the presence of God therein. So often we are taught, and I was taught by other conferences and worship, the, the, you know, just musicians just lead the way. This is the front lines of the battlefield of spiritual consequences. So let's come in and sing and la 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 la, front lines we were. Lied to we were. So this is a job, musician's job was to accompany the ark, and in it the law. The word of God. That was it. Just go along with it. Ark first. Soldiers and everyone else behind. And on top of this, ark was a solid slab of gold. The, the lid, the top, which were two gold cherubim, winged lion men, angel things there, carved there on the top of this gold slab, on top of the ark, their heads bowed in reverence. And do you know what this lid was called? This lid was called the atonement cover. Or you may have heard it even, the mercy seat was what it was called. And from here, from the intersection of these cherubim on top of this mercy seat was where God communicated with Moses inside the temple in the holy place. We sang about it already in Revelation song, Right? Heaven's mercy seat. Now imagine if we sang this song as a response after instead of before. Now you know. And how much more could that mean? Another reason why Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. Friends, we are going to continue sharing in communion more often than we don't. Why? Because Jesus said to. Hopefully that one doesn't need a whole bunch of convincing on my part. We're just trying to follow the Bible. Some denominations, like Methodists, reserve communion for the first Sunday of the month. Others, like the Baptists that we are actually a part of, do it about once every six months. And they make a big deal of it. All about conviction. Yes, that's part of it. But it's not all of it. And we, when we are in the habit of regularly remembering what Jesus has done, the breaking of his body and the bread, the pouring out of his blood, 
and the Jews the sacrifice for many for the forgiveness of sins. I find it hard-pressed that our church will go astray when we keep Jesus the main thing week in and week out. Finally, to tie all this together, you have seen it in Nehemiah now. We read it, and if we were not paying attention, beginning in verse 9, Nehemiah was the governor, and Ezra, the high priest, and the scribe Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet for this day is holy. Three times. This day is holy. And it should be a call to our hearts today. The Ten Commandments I read earlier, number one, two, three, and four, are all about God and His holiness. And we are caught in a world of church that wants to love our neighbor more than we love God. And that is not the way it goes. The love of our neighbor is an overflow out of our love for God. We see here the men, the Levites and the priests were out among the people, the men, the women and children. Can you imagine them kneeling down Next to a seven-year-old boy, the boy has a question. And Okiah kneels down, he says, let me explain this to you. And so we see a glimpse of the reading of the word of God and then people out amongst in the congregation of people explaining what it means. We see the glimpse of the elder-led church. Where do we think the elder-led church came from? It's modeled on the, the history of the Jewish people. Because all Christians were originally Jews before they were Gentiles. It comes out of that history. So they employed the same leadership structure. And I'm thankful for it. And this structure leads us to this place of directing everything, funneling everything towards these three statements we read. This day is holy. This day is holy. Do you believe so? I do. This is a day that we will set aside for the Lord. And you could even make the argument, and that's not today's argument, that technically it probably should be Saturday. That's another story for another time. But right now, we have set aside our Sundays as a day set aside for the Lord. So let's keep it that way. Because He is holy. And I know what I'm asking for our house. I know that it will be harder for you. 
and to be intentional about not going away on a weekend, to be intentional about bringing your Bible with you and coming ready to worship on time and excited, ready to learn, ready to worship. I know what I'm asking. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. If we don't stand on the word of God, we will fall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word for us today. Thank you for the hope that lies within. Stir our hearts up to action because of what we've read. May we be grieved by our sinfulness, brought to tears and face down in worship of the King of kings and Lord of lords because you've never stopped being holy, nor has your word. We have just misplaced it in our lives, in our hearts, in our time, in our priorities, in our finances, in our distractions. God, forgive us. May our hearts be broken and also renewed in this moment. Standing there, convicted, and yet, instead of being condemned, created anew, as only your word can do, as only your son can do. And these aren't Old Testament, old-fashioned things, God. You know this. Your son told us to seek first the kingdom of God, your kingdom, and all other things. Everything else will be added to it. And God, our priorities have become out of order. We have not kept this day as holy. We have not obeyed your law. We have not kept your commandments. So Lord, forgive us. Reform us, reshape us, remold us, remake us into an obedient people and a closer image of Christ for the world. Amen. Church, I want to invite you to go out rejoicing today. I want to invite you to go out rejoicing, not because the band did or did not sing a song, but because hopefully as, your, as mine is, your heart is full Because we are a people in need of forgiveness. And God has offered it. Amen. And amen. A few things I want to share.